0: Crestfallen, the ashen sky finally gave in on its promise and broke into a half-hearted rain shower. I reached my rental, which was parked a few feet from the cemetery gate and swung open the door. Standing there in the pattering rain, I took a few more pulls on a cigarette and cast a final glance at Worm's grave. The pitiful congregation had scattered and two men in overalls noisily shoveled dirt over my brother's coffin. The sweet smell of Leslie's perfume, commingled with mud and tobacco, I enjoyed the sight of her long legs, as she struggled in the mud. Before I could consider offering her a hand, if only to touch the small of her delicate frame, she looked up and yelped. Her eyes briefly searched my features and rested on my lips. For a second there, she said, I thought I was looking at a ghost. Long before Leslie LaCrosse and the chorus line of leading ladies, I lost my virginity to a beautiful high school redhead from my aunt's neighborhood. Strangely, I can't remember her name, the color of her eyes, or what she said to me as I entered her. For something that shaped my life so intensely, I'd forgotten surprisingly much of my first experience with women. I do remember two things vividly, though. One, the date was February 28th, 1991. It was two months before my 11th birthday, and the day the Gulf War officially ended. Two, she smelled like lavender and vanilla and kept her eyes squeezed shut the entire time. A week before the redhead, me and Worm were summoned to the front office of Pine Harbor, Junior High. Silently, we walked side by side down the empty corridor. The principal brought us into a room where a pretty young guidance counselor waited and closed the door. She gestured toward the couch along the wall and walked to the other side of her desk. The three of us sat down, and I watched her exchange a glance with the counselor and shuffle some papers on her desk. The cracks of her thin lips were caked in plum lipstick and drawn together. "'I'm afraid that something has happened to your brother,' she paused. "'Levi?' "'Eli,' corrected the counselor, who looked at us and repeated his name again for our benefit. "'Yes, Eli,' continued the principal. Her incisors were crusted with the slow-tinted wax. "'He's gone.' The official story was that Eli's Jeep was ambushed by Allied strike on the penultimate day of their deployment, and of the forty-four casualties of friendly fire, my brother was the last. I learned this only a few months later when a government official visited Aunt Cecily's house to see how we were holding up. By this time, the culmination of my father's abandonment, my brother's murder, the experience of nearly burning alive, and my mother's commitment to sleepy pines had percolated over and I punched the wall hard enough to break nearly every bone in my left hand. Worm recessed deeper into his silence, and I became prone to violent outbursts and tantrums. Our poor aunt, battling with the news of her sister's hysteria, was pushed to the limits herself. Ah, but I'll explain that later. Right now, all you need to know is that our lives were about to change forever. Worm grabbed my hand and shook his head furiously. The principal only nodded to reaffirm that it was indeed true. Eli was dead. My brother and me were excused from school that day with a note to send to our mother at home. The counselor buckled us into our back seat of the car and repeatedly asked us if we were okay and if we had any questions. On the way back home, she took us to a fast food drive through and bought us one dollar soft serve ice cream cones. We licked them in silence and stared out of the window as she waited with her blinker on trying to merge into the main artery back to the Pine Harbor. There, she burst into tears and apologized profusely. After a few awkward moments, she collected herself and rejoined the traffic. We arrived home just before school would have gotten out, and she asked us through bloodshot eyes if we wanted her to come in. I shook my head, and she looked relieved. Take care of each other now, she said. You're all you've got. At that, she erupted into tears again. "'pulled out of the driveway and sped off. "'Mom was sitting at the kitchen table in the dark. "'In front of her was a neatly folded American flag and medallion, "'a box of Kleenex, a pack of Marlboros, and an ashtray. "'In her hand she cradled a half-empty bottle of Crown Royal, "'swaddled in a puckered purple velvet bag. "'I thought briefly of the principal's lips that morning. "'Worm dutifully walked over and sat on her lap. "'I followed and leaned against her shoulder, hugging her, the three of us cried together. This was supposed to be a chapter about the lovely red-headed babysitter that ejaculated my innocence in my aunt's bed. I'd meant to amuse you by describing how my nervousness, inexperience, and full-arm cast made removing her brassiere an arduous and time-consuming task. I wanted to tell you how I lost my virginity on the 28th of February, just before my 11th birthday. Plans changed, though and since we're pointed in this direction, I suppose this is the direction we'll go. Weary from crying, Worm lied down and stared out the window. He asked me if I thought Eli was in a better place, and I shrugged and reminded him that he was the religious one. In my mind, I thought of the flag that the U.S. Army delivered to our house and wondered what had happened to our brother's body. I thought of him cursing the doctor on our drive back from the pediatricians. I thought of him telling us, We were the men of the house on the day he left. I remember the last time I saw him, and how he asked if I loved him. Worm smelled the smoke before I did. The two of us crept out of bed and pressed our ears to the bedroom door. The events of the day made us forget our charge, the last task Eli requested of us. Not even a day since we learned of his passing and I'd already disappointed the memory of my brother. Cautiously, Worm grabbed the door handle, and I heard the flesh on his palm begin to sizzle. He screamed, but his hand was spot-welded to the metal. When I got my bearings, I rammed against him, and the two of us bounded across the room. He cradled his hand to his chest and moaned in pain. I ran to the closet and grabbed four shirts off their hangers. The first two we wrapped around our necks to breathe through. A third I tied around Worm's throbbing hand. The last I bundled over the doorknob and Zeniva, we counted to three. Lo. D, Z. Zay. The door swung open to a screaming fire that cascaded across the ceiling and dropped molten blobs of paint onto the carpet. We darted across the burning tufts of shag to the living room. The walls were ablaze as the curtains wisped and frolicked in the orange light. On the carpet below the window was a caramelized crown royal puddle and a smattering of cigarette butts from an upended ashtray. We found our mother in the kitchen. She was staring out the window into the night with her hands submerged in a sink full of dishes. Even in the flickering tangerine light, we can see the dishwater was red. For two days, me and Worm shared half of a bunk bed in a boarding house owned and operated by Child Services before Aunt Cecily stepped forward and collected the remnants of her older sister's shattered family. The drive to our aunt's house was a blur of gray, and beige that gradated into green and blue. As the houses thinned, I watched the skyline trade right angles for softer slopes. Worm, who was unable to sleep at the boarding house despite the painkillers they prescribed for his roasted hand, sprawled across the back seat and laid his head in my lap. On more than one occasion, I heard a whimper escape his lips, but chalked it up to exhaustion. Aunt Sess was my mom's younger sister. She spent most of her 20s cloistered in a seminary, but left for reasons we never learned. Now she lived alone in a farmhouse-turned-condo in a wealthy antiquing town that was enjoying the fruits of its renaissance. Cess was an irreproachable, more austere version of our mother. Despite her abstinence from her mother's preferred vices—smoking, drinking, children, if you can call that a vice—and the other agents of aging, she looked at least a decade older than her sister— in the rear-view mirror, I could see how time had ravaged her face. She spoke in curt bursts that momentarily interrupted her silent animadverts under tight lip and furrowed brow. Sess frequently glanced back with hollowed, crow's-footed eyes for any disobedience that would prompt a lecture. And while I normally loathed pity through infantilism, part of me wished that she would tell us that we should think of our little stay as an exciting little vacation while we waited for Mommy to get better. She's sick, I wish she would say, like a tummy ache or the flu, but different. She found such pleasantries improvident and unconscionable, a useless consumption of air. So her calculated responses were devoted to explaining the house rules. I leaned against the window and thought of the kids in my class back in Pine Harbor. I wondered if the counselor blubbered again when she told them where we went, or if she was somehow able to keep it together. I focused on the rhythmic tick, tick, ticking of the road expansion cracks and tried to ignore the similarities in pitch and posture that our driver shared with her sister. We arrived just before sundown, and Aunt Cecily told us to take our stuff upstairs and bathe before dinner. She had assured us that, should we opt not to share a tub, the water from the first of us would be just as good for the second. I drew a bath and told Worm he should go first. Our only belongings were the things from our cubby at school—pens, paper, gym clothes, art smocks, and an oversized change of clothes that child services provided. The shirts we used as masks were blackened, seared, and useless. Thankfully, due to Worm's dutiful practice of transporting his journals and thumb drives everywhere he went, and the counselor's abrupt ride home the previous night, Worm's writings were safely stowed from the fire— I stood in the bathroom and spread toothpaste across my index finger. Worm stepped cautiously into the suds. Rubbing my finger over my teeth, I watched his silhouette wince as the hot water soaked the dressing of his burned hand and wondered how we ended up there. I thought of my mom slitting her wrists with a dirty steak knife and the inferno that raged behind her. I thought of Eli's empty coffin and Worm chasing him down the driveway the last time I saw him. And for a second, clarity struck me, and I blamed Eli for everything. My stupid older brother had to fly halfway across the world to get himself killed by his own buddies, no less, instead of taking care of Mom and me and Worm. He pretended to know what was best for us, pretended to be the strong one, and we bought it hook, line, and sinker. Eli spoke, and we all listened because he was the only one of us that had his shit together. He had us convinced he was going to personally kill Saddam Hussein, liberate the Kuwaitis, restore freedom in the Middle East, and return to Pine Harbor as a hero. And this would make everything better, too. Dad would turn around and come home. Mom would wake up from the decade of depression and codependency and Worm would start talking. A big, happy family, I thought, and punctuated by slamming my fist through the bathroom wall. I felt the bones from my knuckles to my elbow strain and crack and pop. Plaster mixed with toothpaste and blood. Worm peeked out from behind the shower curtain as Antsas yelled something, but by this time the pain had made everything dark and fuzzy. A fragment of light projected the puckered paint in the bathroom ceiling. Then again it was all black. I dreamed of white walls and the smell of camphor and menthol. I know it was a dream because Eli was there across from Worm in the waiting room as the doctor put three pins and six screws in my knuckles and wrist. And because Worm wouldn't tell them my favorite color was green, the doctor gessoed my left arm with a navy blue cast. He told me through a gauzy layer of pain pills that I needed to be more careful the next time I felt the need to redecorate the bathroom. Ignore him, Eli said to me in Zeneva. He's an idiot. The more I tried to focus on his face, the more it blurred apart. "'You're an idiot, too. It's why I left,' he said to my freshly casted arm. "'But then you already know that, don't you?' "'A few hours later, I heard the clink of fork on plate "'and smelled the aftermath of frying meat. "'I was in Cess's living room, I knew, "'but I had no recollection of how I got there. "'In the kitchen, my aunt prated on about my accident "'and leveled with worm about my mom's psychological issues "'possibly being hereditary.' Perhaps your brother has inherited the family disease, she whispered. Your mother has it, that's for sure. I'm certain that my father, your grandfather, also had it. I tried to tune them out, wondering how Eli's ghost had learned our secret language. I foolishly felt elated that he could now share in the burden of communicating for Worm. I woke a second time on the couch the following morning, with a white-hot pain shooting up my arm and a beautiful redhead stroking my hair. She smiled at my unfocused eyes and asked me if I wanted a pill for the discomfort. I nodded.